This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Clearly, uh, the big news today, of course, is the terrorist attack that occurred yesterday in New York City in lower Manhattan. Investigators are still working towards finding a motive for why this individual got inside a rented truck and ran over pedestrians uh, near the World Trade Center in the uh, designated bike path area. Uh, Eight people dead so far, 11 injured in the attack. Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto police officer, of course. Uh, the website, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. Uh, great place to check out uh, some great links to these sorts of topics. And uh, Ross joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his perspective on this. How are you doing this morning, Ross? I'm doing good, uh, Bill. The story rapidly developing here as we're learning more by the hour, it seems, about this suspect. Well, and then it's a narrative, sadly, that we're hearing more and more of, is using vehicles as, as weapons uh, to, to kill people now. This is... First, I guess we heard of it in a big way. It was in Nice, and, and now the latest one in New York City. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the important things uh, about this is just to show how directed of uh, a terrorist attack this is, is this person originally landed in Florida, was apparently in Ohio at some point, on and off in New York City. But this attack, he could have committed it anywhere, was committed in Manhattan, heading towards the uh, scene of the World Trade Center. So this was a picked-out, high-profile target. Do we know anything at all about why? As, as you mentioned, this, this guy lived in Florida for some time, spent some time in, in other cities, but all of a sudden turns up in New Jersey and eventually into lower Manhattan. And, 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 do, and that's the obvious question. Why New York? Why New York City? Why this guy? Why now? Well, I think we're going to find out that he was uh, quite connected to the um, what's being described now is a virtual caliphate, as as the U.S. and uh, everybody has done a good job at taking down, uh, you know, ISIS and Al Qaeda uh, from their physical caliphate. That you have now a virtual caliphate that goes on online with a network that's conducted uh, over the internet by cell phone using the dark web, uh, connected to different uh, radicalizers and different radicalizers associated. Uh, in many instances, with different mosques. And I think we're going to find, as they look at the travels of this suspect, and he's still alive, so they'll have a chance to investigate him, they'll perhaps learn a little bit more about uh, the network. Is there a network? Uh, because I've heard descriptions as a lone wolf, uh, that this guy, uh, we, we all know what he uttered when he jumped out of the van, uh, which is what they all utter, whether they're associated with it or not. Uh, it just seems uh, the the question that comes to mind in a situation like this is, is this part of a larger network or is this uh, a lone wolf who's simply trying to attach himself to, to a, a, another cause? No, I think you'll find that this is someone who's attached, who's become radicalized. A couple of the clues that exist for me, uh, Bill, are this. Number one, he came in on a draft lottery from Uzbekistan where they've got a lot of issues uh, with Muslim terrorism, particularly that actually goes towards Russia as opposed to the Middle East. Uh, this gentleman, when he came over five years ago, he came over five years ago, landed here. It's been said by uh, Governor Cuomo, apparently, on an interview this morning that he believes he was radicalized here uh, as opposed to being radicalized then coming over. That's consistent with the 2016 report that was commissioned by U.S. intelligence agencies that identifies that Uzbekistans, typically when they go off, are radicalized after they leave there. They've committed other offenses in, in different countries in Europe. Now, I'll note that the picture that we have of the suspect, uh, Bill, he has what's called a Salafist beard. Mm -hmm. That is uh, where they have the full beard, but they shave the upper lip. That is considered the, the typical facial hair for Salafists, which are the most conservative 
uh, primal versions of uh, of Islam, where they see a lot of radicalism that comes out of that particular sect for it. So we have that. We have uh, reports that he had a bag in the vehicle that fell out that contained uh, a note that he pledged he was doing it for ISIS, uh, a picture of the ISIS flag, and a, a knife as well in the bag for doing it. Uzbekistan. So try to refresh. I, I tried to look this up just a few minutes ago, Ross, before we started the program. Here, is that not the 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 place of origin of the uh, the Boston Marathon bombers? Yeah, a lot of. It I, I know it's of, one of those eastern states, and I may be wrong that it may or may not have been Uzbekistan. If not, it was a neighboring state. But but those areas are known as as hotbeds for, uh, as you say, terrorist activity and 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 and. But as you say, most of that seems to be directed more toward Russia and Moscow than it does towards the United States. Obviously, the Boston Marathon would be the exception to that, but but we do know that there are cells there. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of the uh, you know the birthplace of this is from Saudi Arabia, where they do the Wahhabi uh, uh, sect, if you will, of of Islam, which is the most radical. And they have in the past sent uh, radicalized people up to. Uh, the other parts of the former Soviet Union, where they've been engaged in terrorism and fights with the Russians going back and forth. And there's there's quite a history of that that goes back quite a way. So it's uh, it's certainly one of the more difficult countries to deal with. Given what has happened, and, and we talked about Nice and, and London, of course, on London Bridge uh, some months ago as well, and, and the the propensity for, for, for these uh, terrorists to, to use vehicles now as, as their weapons, uh, what kind of processes are being put in place down in the States to screen people? I mean, I, I, I don't think it's as easy as anybody simply walking in and say, I want to rent a truck. Sure, here are the keys. See you later. Uh, there, there's got to be some sort of a screening process, I would think. Well, there is. And the, and the NYPD, uh, has, who are leading in counterterrorism, I mean, there's no more prepared city than, than, than New York City for, for terrorism in terms of the steps they've taken. They've actually gone out and educated uh, the truck rental companies about what to look for, red flags. They've done the same things with restaurant owners to talk about how to how to save your people and get them out of the line of fire if something happens. So they've been very proactive. They're going to look to see what the story is with this guy, how he managed to get in and get it. Was there a red flag that should have been noticed? Uh, and how are they going to deal with that? So these are these are some of the questions that are being looked at now. There's there's bunch a bunch of places down in New York are are now sealed off the police are investigating the home where he lived the home depot where the truck was rented and apparently a few storefronts of places that he used to frequent and reportedly now there's also reports that a mosque he attended on and off in that area uh will be investigated as well and it has been under surveillance by the nypd in the past apparently is what the reports are saying bill and there's so many mixed messages that are coming out of here. And as I say, you've given us some of the latest uh, intel that uh, that has been uh, uncovered, I guess, by authorities as they start to investigate this. But I know that as soon as uh, they understood exactly who this individual was, this uh, Sapoff, uh, they checked out where he was down in Fort Myers, Florida. And you've seen these reports, Ross. They, uh, he was, quote, a very good person, a great acquaintance, loved the United States, uh, seemed that he was always fortunate and very happy to be living in the United States, yada, yada, yada. Sounded like a model citizen. And then all of a sudden uh, he turns up in New Jersey uh, as a radical, and uh, we saw what happened here. There's, there's obviously a time lapse there, though, between, uh, I guess, the, the five years of which he landed in the country in Florida and, of course, the, the yesterday afternoon. And you got to wonder exactly where and what happened. Well, let me tell you something that I think needs to be looked at into that. It's just being uh, coming out now as well, that he was married 
uh, and it appears to be that he was married since he came over here. Yes, that's he what has, I heard too, yeah. He, he has a wife with two young children, so he would have been, someone introduced him to a woman, and he's had two young children with her, and uh, they're apparently back now, I imagine being introduced by the police, uh, interviewed by the police, but don't forget, in many of these cases where we've seen these people radicalized, there's been a woman that's been involved, a girlfriend or a wife or some such thing who was there, who was an accomplice, and sometimes they carry out these attacks with the person. So it'll be interesting to see if that was part of what was used to radicalize this man. What about organization? And and I'm, I'm intrigued by, obviously, what happened is horrific and terrible, and anybody who's seen even some of the raw video on this, it's, it's very disturbing and to, to see what happened here and, and to see the, the the carnage that was caused as a result of this. But I was interested in your reaction to this. When he finally, when he ran into the school bus there and he ran out of the truck, uh, he they said he had a weapon. It turned out that he had a pellet gun and a paintball gun, which seems rather, I, 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 for somebody who's bent on destruction like this, those are hardly the sorts of weapons that somebody would use. I don't know even why he brought those along. Well, what's interesting about that, you raise an interesting point. My belief is he was certainly not planning into running into that small school bus. And I've even heard one report that claims that perhaps the school bus driver even positioned the bus in front so that he would run into it. And it was quite the collision, as you can tell, from yeah. the way the, the front of the, the rental truck is bashed in. So that's where he climbed out of the truck. I got no doubt he would have been somewhat uh, concussed or dazed sort of thing when he got out of there. Uh, hence, the black bag didn't come out that had the knife in it. He got out with the two pellet guns. My suspicion is, Bill, is he was only four blocks away from continuing up that bike path to being back at the World Trade Center. So I think he was looking at continuing on, running people over and having his last stand at that place. And at least it shows that he wasn't able to get his hands on uh, any real automatic weapons, which uh, would have been uh, obviously a much larger problem. We've seen in other these vehicle attacks where they get out and they either slash or they have guns and they shoot at people. So this could have been a lot worse than what it was. And that's one of the things, uh, uh, areas of speculation that I know that uh, that NYPD are investigating at this stage is, was there a destination this guy had? Obviously, he, he ran into the bus and that ended uh, the, the carnage at that point anyway. But we don't know what his endgame was, do we? Uh, not at this point. But look, they have him alive. Uh, perhaps they have his devices or some other things that may be there. They'll be able to trace back and look and interview people. And, and they will do an excellent job about that. I don't know that we'll hear much about it in the public as to what they, what they find when they're looking for this network. But look, here's just another interesting piece that came out. Uh, the Homeland Security Director was on TV the other night, and he showed a picture that was apparently uh, made the rounds on the dark web for the Islamist uh, sites, the radical Islamist sites, that showed a picture of someone holding up a cell phone with a picture of the ISIS flag on it in that close to that area of downtown uh, Manhattan in August. And that's about the time apparently this guy was back there. So it was he already signaling that he was getting ready to do his attack there at some point. This will be, that will be an interesting piece. That's a little far off right now, but it's... Uh, it's one heck of a coincidence. Well, especially for anybody who knows the area, Lower Manhattan there. And, and I know the reference point they used when the attacks started, and of course the report started yesterday, was near the World Trade Center. It was actually a few blocks away, but he seemed to be heading in that direction, uh, which I guess is why police at that stage are determining, you know, was there some other place? Is there a cache of weapons someplace that was sitting there waiting for him? Was there somebody else 
that was sitting there waiting for him? Those are all questions that still need to be answered. May well be. And uh, there's no place like downtown New York, as anybody knows who's been there, for camera coverage. You, there's probably no place you can move in lower Manhattan where they don't have cameras covering and picking everything up. So certainly they'll be looking at it. But, you know, what this points to, I think, going forward, uh, is you're going to see more of a more of a move by uh, the countries fighting against these Islamic problems, Britain and the U.S., uh, for sure, to go to the point of going after on the offense the network so they're going to be looking to find out where the network is and attacking the network and you're going to be see more closing of these uh, immigration policies with these lotteries and these sort of things so i think this is the start of uh closing down on the network and more emphasis on doing that who's in charge right now I mean, we keep talking about the nypd investigation and certainly they were first on scene and and started the investigation uh, but do federal authorities get involved at this stage too ross yeah, F- FBI typically is, okay. is the, will be the lead investigators on the terror because they investigate the terror that's overseas and everything else, and they've got the they've got the network. But obviously, uh, they communicate with all of the other intelligence agencies to put things together. There's a, a message. Obviously, I, I guess this guy was trying to send a message. They all seem to have that in their mind that they they want to send some sort of a message. But I think the greater message uh, that uh, that we saw and that uh, that I think the, the the people of New York wanted to spread across is aside from the, where the crime scene was, it's business as usual in Manhattan today. These uh, people, I mean, uh, New Yorkers, are, are not easily intimidated. As a matter of fact, I don't think they're intimidated at all. No, they're not. In fact, you may, you may see uh, them wanting more more efforts to shut down this sort of thing. I was just uh, seeing that the, the uh, New York City Marathon is still going on. It's going to be next Sunday. They're yep. going to have that going on. Of course, they had their Halloween parade the other night. And, you know, there is so much that goes on in the city of New York. I don't think if you wanted to turn around and stop everything, you'd almost be able to stop it. There's so much that happens in that part of town and you know so, something of interest too it seems that we're getting identities of some of the people that were killed and tourists bill you know there was a bunch of people up from argentina there was a belgian citizen that was there a couple of students apparently are injured as well too so when you run someone down in new york you just don't know who's going to be there you know? well eight dead so far that we know of and as you mentioned ross five of them were were not americans uh, they're argentinians and i think one from belgium so uh, a sad place and just being in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, we will watch with great uh, interest, obviously, to see just how uh, police and uh, FBI handle this as, uh, going forward. And I agree with you totally. I think there's a lot more to be learned here. Thanks, as always, Ross. Great to get John again today to bring us up to speed on this. Great, Bill. Thanks very much. Take care. Ross McLean, crime specialist and security expert. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Been to the grocery store lately? You bought a loaf of bread? There is a chance you probably paid more than you should have for this. Uh, Speculation now is the grocery stores are fixing prices on items such as bread. The Competition Bureau has confirmed that they are conducting an investigation related to price fixing, and uh, they tell us this is a big deal. Joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Everybody complains about prices. You know, we pay too much yep. for this, for that, but a boom, but a bing, but a bing. But uh, what would what would motivate or get the competition bureau involved in in those complaints to actually look into exactly what's going on here? Uh, there could have been charges, uh, not charges. Excuse me. There could have been uh, complaints laid by ordinary consumers with the competition bureau. Uh, it could be a competitor uh, that is um, not supplying to the to the grocery chains who was is trying to throw a wrench into it as a competitive strategy. 
In other words, they have received, they don't audit. The Competition Bureau is not staffed with hundreds of thousands of people, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So they don't literally audit every industry in Canada that employs the 14 million people employed in the private sector. So they rely a lot on whistleblowing by uh, disgruntled employees, by competitors that feel something's going on wrong, or just ordinary consumers. I want to caution that just because they're investigating is by no means evidence that they are, in fact, price-fixing. If I can remind your listeners, price-fixing is extremely illegal in Canada. Now, some of your listeners may say, oh, that's, that's nice, Professor, that's nice and naive. Well, if you call going to jail and being concerned about going to jail naive, well, then call me naive. That is to say, the consequences of price-fixing are not trivial. This is no different than cheating on your corporate taxes. You can go to jail and you'll be ruined for life. So my point is, over the years, there have been complaints, suggestions. You know, the oil industry was colluding. And oh, yeah, multiple, yeah. Multiple investigations, and they were there was no evidence. And remember, we are a rule-of-law country where the mere somebody raises their hand and said, that guy's a cheater, is not evidence in court. You have to have real evidence of collusion, tapes of uh, people discussing fixing prices or written communications, that sort of thing. And uh, so my point being that because our industries are fairly concentrated now, that is to say in many industries there's only three, four, five, six major producers, and their prices look very similar because they're in a, com in a market where there's only, as I just said, five or six uh, producers. It's easy to compare prices for any of us as buyers, and so market forces tend to drive the prices towards very similar prices from each producer. In other words, a loaf of bread, you know, a white loaf of bread that's got so many slices in it, it's kind of hard to hide your price. You know, it's either what it is in the grocery store or it isn't at some other price. And so it's like interest rates. You know, people have said to me over the years, well, don't you think the banks are all colluding? Look, they all charge the same price. Well, no wonder they charge the same price because the moment one mortgage company charges a 0.5% higher than everybody else, they'll wake up the following morning and they'll have no customers. I was once the mortgage manager, and every time somebody cut their prices ahead of us, I'm not kidding you. I would be have customers phoning all day long asking for payouts on their mortgage because they were going to the competitor. So what I'm trying to say here, and by the way, I do not consult to this industry. I have no investments in this industry whatsoever. I am a customer who goes to Loblaws like everybody else and Metro and Sobeys. But I am skeptical that this will lead to charges because the people in these big companies today, they're very, very well paid. They're highly educated people. You know, they often have accounting degrees and MBAs and that sort of thing. They're not stupid. And they know that this is extremely illegal, and this would so destroy their career. Going to jail does destroy your career. You can't work and go to work if you're in jail. And, and so the, for that reason, I'm really quite skeptical. Yes, some people break the law. Some people cheat. Yes, there's some bad eggs out there. But I don't believe that the vast majority of us are. And uh, so I'm not so certain this is going to lead to anything. But we as consumers always tend to think the worst, don't we, Ian? And you, yes, use, you yes. use the example of, of gasoline prices. You know, you, you go to a, well, you know, there's three gas stations in a, in a corner, and they're all the same price. Ah, that's collusion. That's what this is. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, but again, as you say, the fact that they're the same doesn't necessarily mean that they all got together and said, hey, I'll look at, let's uh, make this up 105. Okay, fine. Done. Okay, done. Uh, uh, there has to be a paper trail, but we tend to just want to point the finger and say, you know, well, if I can borrow a phrase from Trump from last year, throw them in jail. Uh, It's it's, it's not that simple. And remember, collusion has a legal meaning. It isn't just your prices are the same, therefore you colluded. If I copy my competitor to remain competitive, that is absolutely not collusion. That's called competition. Collusion is where you have secret meetings, because it's illegal, by the way. You can't, you know, run an ad in the Globe and Mail and say, look, fellow competitors out there, let's meet down the street uh, Friday night at 6 o'clock so we can dis- discuss how we're going to fix prices. I mean, that will get you into jail really, really quickly. And so my point is is that it's done in secret, and there are discussions between the producers to agree on a common price or agree on a fixed amount of supply of product coming onto the market, whether it's liters of oil refined or loaves of bread delivered or whatever. And the uh, second problem about, and by the way, there's a vast literature, very good research literature on this, last uh, Europe. Price fixing is really difficult because there's no honor among thieves. And so when somebody starts, it is illegal to collude, um, somebody sooner or later leaks. It's very difficult to set up a conspiracy because you have to involve a lot of people. And the more people you involve, the more likely the conspiracy will become will be discovered because somebody will have loose lips and will call somebody else, and that somebody else will then become a whistleblower and report it. So, you know, conspiracies to conspire to, to limit the price or fix the price, it sounds really simple in, 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 uh, in, uh, it, you know, to do. It's actually horrendously complex, especially when you realize that all these large corporations are completely digitized. That is to say, there's a complete paper trail, electronic paper trail, electronic trail of everything they do, of all their purchase prices and all of their, their decisions on the pricing side. In fact, very quickly, Bill, what people don't realize, especially in consumer goods, fast-moving consumer goods markets like gasoline, people aren't setting those prices. They're like day traders with automated trading algorithms. A lot of these prices where the prices are changing by almost by the minute, they're usually set by, uh, by um, uh, software algorithms. You could almost call them software robots that are setting these prices. So in very large corporations, the idea that there's the CEO is sitting in front of this gigantic computer in his room manipulating the prices is something that's really uh, uh, popular in Hollywood movies. But it's not a reality of the large, complex corporation today. Well, of course not. And we've seen this even with the investigation that's going on south of the border right now with uh, Robert Mueller, the special investigator. Uh, There's a paper trail on everything. I shouldn't say paper, an electronic trail. Electronic trail. On just about everything. Because let's face it, businesses and politicians, clearly, and uh, those types, all they they communicate through social media, through uh, it's all texting, it's emails, it's uh, whatever it's going to be. Uh, and you can you do, hit, hitting delete doesn't do anything to it. I mean that may take it off your screen, but it's still out there. And Bill, you're absolutely right. And even more than that, they're required by law to create the, these records. It's not just government. It's not just universities where I work. And there is a records act. I think it's called the records act. Some one of your listeners may know the precise name. There's statutory legislation now that compels hospitals, universities, senior citizens' homes 
you name it. They've got to com- uh, 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 maintain daily records, very precise records. Banks have to, of course, for the auditors, and any audited company does. So you just can't run a multi-billion-dollar company, no matter what you're making, whether it's bread or gasoline or educating students or or uh, producing, uh, you know, somebody uh, helping somebody in the in the hospital. You just can't run one of these complex organizations and just do it word of mouth or on pieces of paper on the back of, a, of an envelope. That's not the way these large, complex corporations or organizations work. And that's why it's increasingly difficult today to do something illegal, because if you do, the paper, tr- the electronic trail and the records will be there to catch you sooner or later. We may not catch you at the moment you're doing it, like that nurse in southern Ontario that killed people, but they caught her through the, through the excessive amounts of... Um, of a prescription drug she was uh, because the records caught it and and so what i'm saying is you just it's just almost impossible today because everything is recorded in these uh, giant databases no matter the industry of what you're doing on a daily basis now for the skeptics they're going to look and say yeah but you know i went into five different stores and the price was all the same hey there's something going on here could it not be in the fact that as as you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation that because of the amalgamation of a lot of these places i mean like loblaws right now I mean, Loblaws owns the Superstores, Fortino's, uh, No Frills, Shoppers Drug Mart. Yeah. Uh, of course the prices are going to be similar because it all comes from one head office. Fifteen years ago, exactly. those were all separate entities. So, of course, there'd exactly. be some differences in price. That's not the case anymore. I think you hit the nail on the head, and I don't, you know, that I'm a very pro-market kind of a guy. I'm not on the left side that wants to regulate business. But what we've experienced in the last 15, 20 years is the increasing industry concentration. That is to say, there's fewer and fewer, but bigger and bigger companies that control hundreds, thousands of products, so they're all set by the one company. In other words, to put this into plain English, there's less and less competition as smaller firms get bought up by bigger firms. This is going, it's called media concentration in the broadcast industry. It's We've had it for years in banking, where we literally only have literally six banks, essentially, in this country that have 95% market share, which is just unbelievable. We're seeing it in gasoline. We're seeing it in food processing. There's just less and less competition. And, and they all study each other by the minute. So they're watching the prices of the, other, of the other guy. And the moment they see a price discrepancy, they don't want to be caught with a competitive disadvantage. As we know, as consumers, quite a few stores, think of Home Depot and stores like that, where they promise at the cash register, if you find it cheaper anywhere else, you bring it into us and we will rebate to you right away. Well, that's just another way of saying I'm going to cut my price to meet the competitor. And, and so there's this competitive pressure to, to equal the price of the competitor. And what looks like collusion to the outsider is, in fact, a hyper-competition and, a less, in a, in a, paradoxically, in a less competitive market where you've only got three, five, seven producers. Of course, it goes back to your original point about who might have blown the whistle on this thing and got the competition bureau involved in this. Uh, when you have these large entities like like uh, Loblaws, for instance, uh, there's always going to be the chance that some of the smaller producers are going to get squeezed out. Uh, and, and as a result, they may be the ones that, uh, and legitimately, you know, are upset about that. But, I mean, that's... Uh, that's showbiz. There's not a whole lot you can do about that. We hear the same thing about all these crap breweries that want to get into the beer store. It's a bit of a monopoly, and that's starting to happen in the grocery business now, too. It is. It is. And so you get smaller producers that aren't as competitive. They're disgruntled. They're unhappy. They're angry. I could be a disgruntled employee, too, by the way. 
um, you know, because of something that happened in the workforce. And so, uh, and there's, and that's part of the, uh, the consequence of whistleblower legislation, which I do support, by the way. I'm not trying to say let's get rid of it, but we have to investigate every time there's a complaint by a whistleblower or a disgruntled competitor to see if there actually is real evidence of what's being claimed, or is it merely a disgruntled, angry competitor or employee. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how this rolls out. Uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left here, but as, as the Competition Bureau investigates this, uh, as you say, on such a grand scale right now, uh, where do they begin in a situation like this? Because they're cognizant of all the stuff you and I have just talked about right now. Absolutely. Uh, do we read anything into the fact that they've decided to, to, to jump into this anyway, that maybe there is something to this, or, or are they really just kind of going through the motions and say, well, you know, this is the reality here, guys? The fact that they announced it is shows that they're beyond the gist. They've received one single complaint from one single disgruntled competitor or, or, um, or employee. Uh, the fact that they have announced the investigation suggests that they have, I, this is my interpretation, it suggests to me that they have a series or a number of uh, allegations or complaints that have been made by a number of different people. And so there's some prima facie or on-the-surface uh, evidence that warrants further investigation. And so, of course, it also sends a signal to those companies get ready for a phone call and probably a visit from the Competition Bureau. Remember, they have subpoena powers. They have courts. They're a quasi-judicial body. They can go in. like They're almost a combination of police and courts because they can go in and subpoena records. And, uh, and so they have the authority to, to investigate these things. And when you get these uh, calls to provide information to the Competition Bureau, you are required to oblige because, of course, if you don't, then you're into obstruction of justice which is extremely serious. So the companies typically will announce immediately they're going to comply to the fullest extent of the law and provide whatever the Competition Bureau needs in terms of information to show, because they're going to, it's obviously their interest, to show to the Competition Bureau that they have nothing to hide. Uh, we should mention, by the way, that the Competition Bureau has imposed fines of over $13 million in the last couple of years, so these guys uh, aren't just going through the motions. They're serious. Absolutely. And, and I have long argued... Bill, I've long argued that it's not the fine that's the uh, the worst thing. And people say, what's $13 million if you're a multi-billionaire company? It's your reputation. Your reputation can be ruined. Your corporate reputation can be ruined. Look at the Weinstein Company. Okay, well, that was about sexual criminality, it would appear, by Mr. Weinstein. But it destroyed his company. They're going to be winding it down. And it destroys your, your reputation as a person, as an executive. The last thing you ever want as a CEO or a CFO or a vice president is to be running the company when it was convicted of price fixing. That will finish your career. And, and so it's the reputation. The moment the fine is the signal to the market, there's a bunch of, of uh, bad guys here, uh, people operating uh, in, improperly. And that signal in turn goes out to the market, and as I said, it tends to cause great damage to the reputation of that company and to those people that were involved in it. Ian, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Ian Lee, of course, from the Smart School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The uh, college strike continues here in the province of Ontario. Uh, and uh, there are a couple of interesting twists on this. This is heading into the third week right now. I've talked to, on this program, uh, some of the uh, folks involved uh, from faculty who are on strike right now. We've talked with some management types. 
Uh, we've tried to get some word from government right now, and they're kind of standing back, officially anyway, and saying they, uh, they don't want to get involved at this stage. I think that was a mistake. But we haven't heard from the students. I mean, the students are the, uh, they're a factor in this. Uh, we're talking about 500,000 students across the province of Ontario. Well, there's a rally at Queen's Park today to try to get the government to do something about this. And at that rally will be some students from Mohawk College, at least 20 that we know of, are going to join the rally. And uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Samantha Hoover, who is the president of the Mohawk College Student Association. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Samantha, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm pretty good. Good. You feeling pretty pumped about this? Yeah, I'm really excited to get down there. All right. Yeah. This is this is kind of an unusual circumstance. Like I say, you've got labor versus management. Uh, that's the usual scenario right now. But clearly you guys are a factor in this. I mean, students are impacted by this in a big way. Uh, talk to us about, first of all, uh, before we get into the rally, about exactly what motivated you to get involved in this process and be part of this rally today. Thank you very much. Um, I really think that I wouldn't be here and none of the students in the colleges would be here without the students, right? And that's why, that's my main motivation for being involved and I'm frustrated for them. Um, the, over 500,000 students are not currently learning properly right now because of this strike and it's going into the third week and like you said, it's very frustrating. Um, but joint advocacy is so important. It's, it's good for me to say, hey, get back to the table, but if there's other student association presidents and students alongside me saying the same thing, our message is heard more clearly. And that's why it's so important to advocate together. Now, you're going to be at the rally today, but you're not taking sides on this, are you? No. So we're taking a neutral stance, which means we're not for either OPSU or CEC, so we're not taking that side. We are mainly communicating to students about what's going on and ensuring that we are um, giving them the updates that we get as we get them. Um, and that's where we're at. I mean, let's face it. I mean, as I mentioned in my commentary at 810 this morning, there's going to be no solution if they're not even talking. Exactly. That's the most important thing right now. What are you hearing from the student body? As, as president of the Mohawk uh, uh, Students Association right now, this is into the third week right now. Mm -hmm. uh, we kind of had the expectation, Sam, when, when this whole thing started, that it probably wasn't going to get settled anytime soon. So some yeah. folks are saying, well, it's no surprise that it's into the third week right now. But uh, we're talking about your academic future, not just you, but, I mean, 500,000 other students like that. How, how are the students responding and reacting to this? Students are, at first, they were very um, inquisitive, like, what's going on? Like, what am I supposed to do right now? Um, and the MSA, I can say we have an FAQ on our website. We, I've been putting out memos for myself just to say, hey, here's what's going on, what you need to do. Um, but I can tell you that I don't have the answers to at the end of the strike, and it's very frustrating. Students are somewhat panicked right now very stressed. That's what I hear from Mohawk students right now. They just want to be back in the classroom receiving the education that they paid for. And I think that's a very fair statement. Um, and what also concerns me is their student mental health and well-being. Um, without being in class for three weeks in a row now, they're not in the class. They're not learning. They're not getting the education that they need to succeed in life. And that will take a toll on their well-being if it hasn't already. And the quality of education is also a concern. Um, what is it going to look like when we compress the semester whenever the strike does end? That's something that's also concerning, as well as undue stress on students. It's already been three weeks now, um, and that's very stressful. Even one week is stressful on students if they're not in the classroom. So those top three concerns are what we're hearing the most right now on my side at the Mohawk, and I'm sure that is echoed 
through all the other colleges as well. From an academic standpoint, what, what guys, what can you do at this stage? I mean, you, you're not allowed to have contact with the teachers, with the, the profs at this stage, so that's out. But uh, you, you don't want to just sit there, you know, hanging around doing nothing. You, you, you don't want to be a mall rat. I mean, you, you want to learn. I mean, that's what you're here for. Is, is there anything you can do to, to stay sharp and to stay fresh? Absolutely. So um, actually, about a couple of weeks ago, um, myself and about seven other student association presidents from Ontario, we sent a letter to Premier Wynn, Minister Matthews, and a bunch of MPPs um, just to say, hey, this is what's happening. We want to meet with you guys. So last Thursday, um, myself and those presidents met with Minister Matthews, and we brought those concerns to her directly, and she heard us, and those are her same concerns as well. And she's looking into what can be done. And we also chatted with both bargaining chairs from OPSU and CEC, uh, obviously, there's no new updates there because they're not at the table, but it really gave us a, an understanding so that we can communicate back to our students saying this is actually what's going on, um, this is what we know right now, and that's all we can really do. Like, I wish I could say the strike's over right now. I wish I could call that, honestly, but I don't have that power, and I'm really just we're really hoping that they get back to negotiating as soon as possible. Yeah, but it looks like you've done more to try to bring the two sides together than anyone else has in the last three weeks. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, and... and we just want to make sure the student voice is heard. That's my job as president. My main role in being in this role is to make sure the student voice is heard, and that's all we can do at this point. And I think that we're being heard. It's just a matter of continuing to echo our voices, and I think the rally is a really key piece in that today. Well, and, and your voice is being heard, and, and you speak, of course, on behalf of the students. And it's always important in situations like this, I think, Sam, to to put a, a, a name and a, and a face to, to what's going on here. Uh, I talked yesterday with a good friend of mine, Theo Sellis, who's a, a frequent guest on this program. Uh, mm-hmm. Theo's a, 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 a therapist, of course, but he's also a teacher. He teaches at one of the colleges uh, just north of Toronto, and he's on the picket line right now. And he was very passionate yesterday about how he's picketing, but, you know, he misses the students because he's dedicated to the students. And I, I've known Theo for many years, and I, I know mm-hmm. that to be true, and I'm sure that's, it's that for most profs at the same time. But let me talk to you about the student perspective right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, at community college, We've, and the ones at Mohawk specifically, because those are the ones obviously that you're representing right now. Yeah. Uh, you've got a lot of people in that full-time student body right now who don't even reside here in Hamilton. Oh, well, some of them are here now, obviously, because they're going to school. Mm-hmm. But for the last three weeks, they've been living in this community, unless they've gone home, uh, yeah. and, and doing nothing. I mean, they can't learn because they came here to Hamilton. They're playing rent, obviously, on a place. Maybe some of them working a part-time job, probably most of them not. Uh, they've they got this student loan hanging over their head, and nothing's happening. It's got to be very frustrating for them. Absolutely, yeah. And what we are trying to do as the MSA, our facilities are still open to all people. Um, whether you're faculty on the picket lines, you can come and use our facilities, get some food, or if the students are still coming in. We do see it quite a bunch of students uh, roaming the halls right now, even though the strike is happening. Because they just want to be back. They're, they're still so dedicated to being here, even on the strike. Um, but the MSA, we're... Hours are still open. We're, our services are still going. Our food bank, our emergency loans, our food services are still open for students to come eat. So we're really trying to um, have them back here as much as possible, even though it's unfortunate for those that live here and aren't doing anything right now. Um, and we're trying to promote, like, continuing to keep up with their studies. So if, even if you're not in class, you're still working on your assignments so that when the strike does end, you're not culture shocked with how much work you have to do. So that's really what all the, the other part that we can do is to make sure that they have somewhere to go and something to do while they're here. So they're not just like twiddling their thumbs um, for however long the strike lasts. I, I know there's been some discussion about losing semesters and, and, and things of this nature, and we hope it doesn't get to that point. 
And I know that uh, that uh, Ron McCurley from Mohawk College has already tweeted out this morning that they're going to extend, I guess, this semester uh, to the third week of December, uh, mm-hmm. if in fact they can get back to work. I mean, it's all premised on that, obviously. Yeah. Here's here's my concern, though, and you speak for all the students here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you do something like that and say, "Okay, uh, that time off is canceled," uh, you probably have to write some exams on weekends. Uh, uh, we can squeeze everything in here if we can get back to work and probably make it work from a from a, a calendar standpoint. Mm-hmm. And that may work for some students, but there are some other students that are going to find it very problematic and stressful to deal with that. And 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 that's why you know when this thing does get settled and it will eventually get settled. I, I don't want people just kind of, you know, slapping their hands and say, well, now we can back up. We'll just squeeze everything in and it'll be fine. This is going to put huge pressure on a, on a, a fair number of the student body. Yeah, and that's very concerning for me as well. And, you know, I, I also don't have control over what happens with um, academics. And I, but I do have a No, you just, I, you just get the fallout from it. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I am preparing for that. It's, um, you know, I don't know what the strike is going to look like when it's over, but um, I've prepared myself for the absolute worst, which is I don't know what that is, but I need to be prepared because these situations are so unique. Every student, um, there are so many of them, but they are all are unique, and we need to, to accommodate them to each of their needs, and I think that's most important, regardless of what happens with the semester and where it's compressed and where it's squeezed. Um, I've been hearing from the government and in the colleges as well that they're really trying to see the semester because no student um, in the community college system has ever lost a semester due to a strike. And they really want to keep that going because, you know, the semester to complete is important because they have prerequisite courses that have to, you know, come before the next semester and and a lot of other factors as well. But, yeah, I really am tuned in to the concern of the students, like how they're going to operate when they come back. It, It is very concerning, and I am... Um, keeping my eyes and ears on the ground so that I understand and know how to help accommodate them when that time comes. What would you like to accomplish at this rally at Queen's Park today? I mean, uh, I, I guess one of those boxes you want to check off is awareness. Well, I think they already know about this, okay? Yeah. You already talked to Minister Matthews, and I'm told she's going to address the crowd there today, too. But yeah. is there a takeaway that you'd like to see? I really just want them as a result of this, to get back to the table. That's really all we can strive for at this point. We can't say, well, do this deal, make this choice. That's them. That is both OPSU and CEC's responsibility as both parties to come together to do that. All I really want out of this, and, and I think everyone can agree, is that they need to get back to the table and talk. Because, you know, they could be saying, OPSU is saying one thing, CEC could be saying another thing, but we really don't know what they can say together unless the mediator gets them back to the table. So we, that's why I really want that to happen today. That's my, my main goal here. Do you see the province having a role in that to, to, to get them back together? Not necessarily to arbitrate a settlement, but at least to get mm-hmm. them into the same room again? I think if it continues past, you know, this week and then following weeks, however long it goes, I think it may have to be an option. And I read an article on the CBC on Monday um, that says Premier Wayne will not rule it out legislating back to work. So they're not intervening yet because they believe that both sides can come to an agreement, um, but they're not ruling it out. So I think at you know the worst case scenario, if it's like a few more weeks, I think they will have to definitely step in to get them back to the table. Well, you'd like to get some sort of a positive response from the government, I would think, and, and certainly that's what I'd be looking for here, Sam, is for either the Premier or the Minister of Education or somebody mm-hmm. to simply come forward and say, look it, let me talk to both sides and see if we can set a date to at least sit back in the same room again. Yeah. Uh, anytime tops break off like this, I mean, it's I, I understand that there's a little bombast and rhetoric that goes on here, and that's all part of the negotiation process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't want to maybe go so far as to say you guys are being used as pawns here, but you, you're, you're, 
you're kind of helpless here. I mean, you're, you're taking a very proactive move here by going to Queen's Park today for the rally, but there's not a whole lot else you can do here to impact what's going on except to implore both sides to at least get back into the same room again. Yeah, and that was the point of our meetings with both bargaining chairs last week. We really didn't understand why they weren't talking. Like, that's the key to a settlement is communication, right? Um, and that's what we came out to understand from each of those meetings last week, and we really just want them to hear us again. Yes, they've heard us, and it's great, but if we continue to echo that, that voice, that will be the key um, to getting them back to the table. And we really cannot stop um, emphasizing that we need to get students back in the classrooms. The faculty agree with us. They're on the picket lines. Like you said, they're saying, we want to be back in the class. And, and I really think it's time for them to be back. And I think um, this rally will be a key part in echoing our message. And, and that's why it's so important for representation for not only the students, but the student associations as well. Well, in my commentary at 8.10 this morning, I suggested that somebody has to be the adult here and get back and, and, and start <laughs> beginning the conversation. And I find it rather interesting, Sam, that uh, it's the student association that's being the adult here, not the either side in the conflict right now. I just hope it's successful for you. I, and and obviously you. going to this rally today is a big part of that, the conversations you've had with the minister, uh, yeah. a big part of that, and the fact that you've tried to be a conciliator uh, as far as the two sides are concerned right now, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I think this is a situation where they're learning from the students here as opposed to the other way around. I really hope so. I think that's, that's a great perspective to take, and I, I consider that as well. It's really, we are, um, there are 500,000 of us, and we are the biggest stakeholder in this, and we really need to be teaching them something right now, and I'm glad that they're looking to us and saying, well, if they can advocate, why can't we? Why can't we get back to the table? That's what I want them to think today. Well, good luck with the rally today. Good luck with uh, the ongoing uh, work that you're doing to try to make this thing work. And uh, listen, I hope sooner than later you guys are back in the classroom. Thank you so much, Bill. I couldn't agree more. Take care, Sam. Good talking to you today. You too. Thank you very much, Bill. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Samantha Hooper, who, Hoover, rather, who is the president of the Mohawk Student Association, and she's on her way to Queens Park. Uh, and and to underscore this, yes, the, the rally there is being put on by the union, okay? And it's, it's to get attention for the government and to try to get them involved in this. But uh, the point is well taken. The student association is not taking sides. They're not saying, yeah, the union's right and, and the colleges are wrong. They're simply saying, get back to the table and start talking. That's a simple message, and I hope they get that at Queen's Park today. And not just the government, but the two sides who don't seem to want to talk to each other right now. Learn from what the students' association are talking about. Get back to the table and get this thing done. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.